in heaven, I want to pray the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Lord, over us right now. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I ask it, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to continue on in our series on uh, discipleship in the real world. And it's interesting that they announced that the youth group Ignite was going, were going to have a Mission Impossible in another couple of weeks, and that's the title of this week's sermon, Mission Almost Impossible. During a sermon series that I preached once on spiritual warfare, I opened one of the messages with this provocative statement, spiritual life is a jungle. Have you found that to be true? Well, today I want to expand that idea to say this, that life in the real world is a mission. It's a mission through a very dangerous and ruthless jungle. And only those who are prepared to meet the onslaught of the fierce challenges that we will face survive. Only those who are able to effectively discern danger and have armed themselves with the proper defense mechanisms will emerge alive and well. No one ever comes through the mission completely unscathed. Hopefully that doesn't surprise many of you. If it does, better get off now because you're in for a ride if you're new to Christ. No one comes through this mission completely unscathed, but the wise and the prudent will hopefully make it through uncorrupted, okay? To be a disciple of Christ in our very real, tangible, everyday world places us dead center in one of the most intense struggles and fiercest conflicts and embroiling battles ever to be waged on a spiritual level. Anybody find that to be true so far? For our struggle, wrote the Apostle Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Dan talked about the world that we live in and the darkness of the world. Have any of you gotten the sense at all that this can't possibly just be a political issue? <laughs> That would be a terrifying reality, what I just read to you, quoted to you, had he not followed it up with the Apostle Paul with the encouragement that as Christians, we have the necessary resources at our disposal to survive this jungle, amen? I love the way the Living Bible translates that next verse after the ones I just read. So, use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy whenever he attacks and when it is all over, you will be standing up. That's Ephesians 6.13. Now, as I allow my mind to absorb the seriousness of those words, I'm tempted to respond in a Frodo-like manner as he, upon learning about the mysterious inheritance that has come his way in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, lamented, Quote, I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Unquote. In response, the old wizard Gandalf offers a wise appraisal. He said this, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have, unquote. Now, as I revisit the story of Frodo's mission, fraught with unyielding danger and risk, I can't help but apply it to my own life as a follower of Christ. And when I do, the key thought strikes me. Alarming conditions demand acuteness in character. 
okay? We say that again. Alarming conditions around us are going to demand that we have an acuteness of our character, in our character, and as you and I attempt to carry out the great commission to which we've been charged as Christ followers, it's inevitable that we will experience both expected and unexpected spiritual assaults, amen? Again and again, they will strike. Time and time again, they may knock us off balance, and as we get up, they will repeatedly coil themselves around us we may often find ourselves staring straight into the eyes of an unblinking and unflinching enemy who is out to destroy us. Alertness, wisdom, keen discernment, and sincerity in our actions are the necessary character traits Jesus said we will need to survive this jungle. We must use, as the sage advice was given, such strength and heart and wits as you have. That's what Jesus alerts all of his disciples to. So Matthew chapter 10, follow with me as I read verses 16 through 22. Behold, Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be even brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That's some mission. I'll say one thing about Jesus. He didn't give us a false impression of what life in the discipleship lane would be about. He laid it out very plainly, didn't he? He didn't clothe it with Madison Avenue or Facebook fakeness, portraying something that looks nice on the outside, but it's not so good once you see the reality behind it. Rather, he unveiled it more as mission impossible. Jesus gave it to us straight. He says, this is your mission. Should you choose to accept it at its grimmest, at its worst, will you accept it? The truth is that we don't have a choice. If you're in Christ, the mission comes with him. It's that simple. The encouragement, however, is that because Christ, because Christ and the mission are inseparable, it is not an impossible mission. Did you get that? He walks with us every step of the way. If he gave us a mission, he's present in the mission. As we study this passage of Scripture, it's imperative to keep in mind that as Jesus was giving these instructions and warnings to the twelve, he was telescoping the underlying ministry principles to include all disciples from that point on until he comes again. You find that in verse 23. But whatever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Okay? In short, he was speaking to all of us. In outlining the obstacles that believers would face as they ministered in a world, Jesus has not left us unprepared. For the rest of this message, we need to keep in mind that these are the things that we can expect. Okay? We can expect these things. He's laying out the reality, all the fine print. These things will happen, Jesus said. You can't get around it. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. Indeed, anyone who has perused church history will recognize immediately that these things have happened. They are 
presently happening and they will intensify as the time of Christ's return draws near. Jesus isn't out to scare you. He's not out to scare us. His goal is to prepare us. Not scared, but prepared, okay? Are you prepared? The alarming conditions surrounding discipleship in the real world demand an acute demonstration of Christ-like character. That is the thrust of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. That's all we're going to look at today. One verse. I love unpacking one verse. There are two things we need to take note of if we're going to endure this mission. The first is that the atmosphere of the world that we're being sent into, we need to take notice of that. And the second is the attitude that Christ wants us to have in the midst of that world. Atmosphere, attitude. Pretty simple to remember, right? First, we must acknowledge the atmosphere of the world into which Christ sends us. What's it say in verse 16, the very first part of the verse? Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, that's a good mission right out of the chute, isn't it? When Jesus used the term behold, he wasn't just using archaic language, by the way. He used it to emphasize the importance of what he was about to tell them and us. He's literally saying, pay attention to me. Pay attention. Look me in the eye. This is no joke. I myself am sending you out with full consciousness of what you're going to be up against. There's no fine print here. I'm sending you out as a few sheep in the midst of a world full of hungry wolves. That's what he's saying. It's one of those statements where more truth can be mined in the white spaces between the letters than in the words themselves. The first thing to note is the intensely personal nature of the statement. Okay, let's look at that. Now, I told you I was going to unpack one verse, and I love doing this. We're going to look at every nuance this, word, this verse has to offer. This is what Bible study is supposed to be about, right? Personal nature of the statement. Number one, the people involved. Look at what Jesus says. Behold, I send who out? You. You. I send you out. Think of that old, old poster, right, of Uncle Sam pointing finger. I want you. I send you out. I want you to know that Jesus is speaking to you and to me. This is our mission as a church, as his church. It's interesting that just prior to this discourse that Jesus said to his disciples, quote, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38, just prior. Now, I wonder if they might have reacted the way we often do, thinking to themselves, okay then, let's just pray that the Lord will send people out. They probably never dreamed that he would send them. But that's exactly what he did. They became the answer to their own prayer. Listen, friends, unless you look at this message as applying directly to you today, unless you are willing to be the answer to the prayer that God would raise up and send out workers, you cannot pray that prayer sincerely. Okay? That's what this whole chapter is about. Most of us are too much like Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, where five times Moses refused to accept the fact that God was sending him, and he argued with God. Hold your finger in Matthew 10 and look at Exodus for a moment in chapter 3. to show you a few verses there. Remind us of even the best of the Bible characters argued with God about their mission and they were reluctant to receive it. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, first part of the verse. Therefore, come now and I will, this is God talking, I will send you to 
Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, I'll send you to Pharaoh. Verse 11, but Moses, but, always beware when you see that word, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Verse 12, and he said, certainly, God said, I will be with you. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses said to God, What if they will not believe me or listen to me, to what I say? For they may say, The Lord hasn't even appeared to you. Look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I love God's response. The Lord says, Who was the one who made man's mouth anyway? You go, it says in verse 12, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you are to say. Isn't that what we just read in Matthew chapter 10? Don't worry about what you're going to say when they bring you before governors and magistrates. I'm going to give you the words. The Father will give you the words. Verse 13, Moses says, but please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. We don't want that, do we? We ought rather to be more like Isaiah. Isaiah, who as he came face to face with the Lord in his glory, responded this way in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. When you come face to face with God's word, let me ask you a question this morning. How do you react? Like Moses or like Isaiah? I wonder if the words of Ezekiel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, are appropriate to our own time. Ezekiel 22, verse 23 and following. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things and they have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. I am profaned among them. Who's he talking about right here? Is he talking about the country? Is he talking about the leaders and the political leaders of the country? Who's he talking about? The priests. The people in the temple. The spiritual leaders. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declared the Lord God. You see, we are the people that are involved here in our time. And there is peril implied. Jesus is saying to all of us, this is the world that I'm sending you into. It's not a pretty sight. In fact, they're going to hate you 
They're going to try to devour you. I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. So that's the people involved, us. Let's look at the peril that's illustrated here by Jesus. When Jesus used the analogy of sheep and wolves, he wasn't exaggerating, nor was he kidding. He was dead on serious. Far too often, Christians think that they are the wolves. We're the attackers. We're going after those people in society. We're going after the government. We're going after this. We're going after, we're the wolves. But Jesus calls us sheep, not wolves, right? Sheep are mentioned more than 500 times in the Bible, significantly more than any other animal. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, sheep are metaphorically used to describe people and their relationships with the Lord. We are the sheep. We're sheep. We're the sheep of his pasture, Psalm 100 says. It's no accident that Jesus continually used that metaphor for his followers either. Both the positive and the negative traits of sheep describe our actions so well. According to Christian author Gary Richmond, a former animal keeper and veterinary assistant at the Los Angeles Zoo, he says, while being the sheep of the Lord's flock is indeed a blessing, it's not much of a compliment. Sheep are like the most dependent, helpless, and unintelligent of all domesticated animals. They are often their worst enemies. According to Richmond, they require the most care of all domesticated animals. They are compelled by mob instinct to take their cues from each other. They tend to think as a group, not for themselves. If one panics, they all panic. They go with the flow, even if the flow is going in the wrong direction. Went to a conference earlier, just a couple of months ago, GLS conference, and it, one, of the, one of the speakers was author Juliette Funt. Probably don't know her. You probably know the last name though, right? Anybody recognize the name Alan Funt? You're on candid camera, right? This is the daughter. She's, she was a really good speaker. She told a little story that happened to her when she was a little girl that illustrates what I'm talking about, sheep. And it's scary. She and her dad were flying on a plane. And it was back in the day when people were hijacking a lot of planes. Well, lo and behold, that flight was hijacked. And they were flying to Cuba. Okay, she and her dad, Alan Funt, candid camera fame. So what happened to her was intriguing. So people were in a panic, you know. The guy's in the cockpit and he's got a gun to the pilot's head. They're flying, they're hijacking to Cuba. The message got sent back and uh, the, you know, the flight attendants were trying to calm people down and everything. And then lo and behold, one of the women that were sitting back there looks over and they noticed Alan Funt sitting next to his daughter. So she comes up with the brilliant idea that this is a candid camera thing and it's not real. And she points to him and says, that's Alan Funt. This has got to be a candid camera thing. And they're saying, no, no, this is not it. This is real. I'm not doing candid camera. Nobody would believe him. <laughs> All the people on the plane just started believing that it wasn't being hijacked <laughs> till they landed in Cuba. <laughs> this is what Juliet says. She says, when people think together, it's hard to pull them off the path. This is sheep. This is the church, believe it or not. We get something in our mind and we all follow suit and it could be wrong. And somebody stands up and says, you're going the wrong way, buddy. This is not what's going on, but you can't convince them otherwise. Because we're sheep. We have a mob mentality. Moreover, sheep are 
incredibly susceptible to fear. When confronted with danger, real or imagined, they run and scatter, making themselves more vulnerable and open to attack. Sheep are timid and reluctant, not positive traits for Christians. Timid people usually risk nothing and therefore gain nothing. They fear failure and success, both. And therefore, they don't try anything. Sheep are unintelligent acting, destructive and incredibly stubborn. They possess an amazing ability to get dirty and stay that way until someone else cleans them up. They have a tendency to continually wander off and get lost. Their lack of focus causes them to go astray, leaving them unprotected and, un and vulnerable. That is exactly the trait that Isaiah the prophet referred to in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 when he wrote, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Once lost, the sheep must be found and returned by someone else. Finally, and most significantly, sheep are extremely vulnerable to predators. As Gary Richmond says, quote, they are to the animal world what Barney Fife is to law enforcement, unquote. <laughs> Without a shepherd and left to themselves, sheep, they wouldn't have a chance, right? Alone and in the midst of wolves, they don't have a prayer. That's why Jesus' words here in verse 16 are so alarming. Wolves are notoriously persistent predators, aren't they? They have tremendous endurance and seem tireless as they hunt and wear down their prey. They are capable of exerting unmatched strength. A wolf, says Gary Richmond, can bite with the unbelievable force of 1,500 pounds per square inch. Want to get bit by a wolf? Although they have inestimable potential against prey larger than themselves, guess what they feed on? Wolves will prey concentrate more on defenseless newborns, the weak, the old, and the sick. Wolves are merciless hunters who hunt mostly at night. They tear their victims, victims apart, often devouring their prey before it even dies. They are vicious, ravenous killers. It's no wonder that the Bible uses the term wolves when referencing false prophets and false teachers, attackers of the sheep, and enemies of the gospel. This is the pattern of the cults, okay? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 Just to give you an illustration, Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How about Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and 29, Paul's warning the Ephesian elders, and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among uh, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Those are scary words, aren't they? And then in John, you know these verses in John, Chapter 10, famous words of Jesus about being the good shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 12. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Now, according to verse 16, here in Matthew 10, Christians are in the thick of it, aren't we? Right in the middle of trouble. The name of the game is spiritual conflict. If you ever wonder why, as a Christian, you feel like prey and under attack by the world around you, I've got a question for you. What do you expect after this? 
According to Jesus, you're a tender lamb in the territory of hungry wolves, predators. These are the facts that make Jesus' words so inconceivable at first glance. And the immediate question that should come to your mind when you read these verses, this verse is why would any shepherd, especially the good shepherd, send his flock of sheep deliberately into wolves' territory? Why? Have you ever thought about that? An old expositor by the name of Alexander McLaren answered that question simply with great insight when he said these words, mark them down. He who sends them forth goes with them whom he sends. I love that. As God's presence went with Moses as his power went with Isaiah, Jesus promises to go with us. So we've got the people, we've got the peril. Now look at the protection that's implied here in, in John. John chapter 10 again, uh, in verse 11 through 15. John chapter 10, 11 through 15. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I've been given complete authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. In the midst of Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, having been beaten and cursed, and in Acts chapter 11, receiving persecutions and attacks against him, when it must have seemed as though the wolves were closing in on him and doing him in, the Lord appeared to him in a vision, and this is what he said to him in Acts 18.10. Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. That's the Lord's encouragement. In Matthew 10, Jesus set before us the cost of discipleship. He also implied that we would not face our peril alone. It is Jesus who sends us. He is the good shepherd, the one who lays his life down for the sheep. And if he sends us, he will surely protect us, provide for us, and preserve us until he calls us home. Amen? Why? Because he's the good shepherd who died for us, John, 11, John 10, 11. He's the great shepherd who lives for us. That's in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. He's the chief shepherd who is, Lord's, who is Lord over us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And he's the guardian shepherd who saves us forever in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd, guardian shepherd. That's who you have on your side. So as sheep able to do nothing on our own, we absolutely need this shepherd, don't we? And with him, we can and we will withstand any wolves that come our way. I am moved here by the honesty of Jesus. He never drew back. He never minimized what we should expect. And that is simply not the way the world or most preachers operate today. Jesus didn't promise comfort. He didn't promise advancement. He didn't promise physical pleasure. He promised hardship, even death. Not the greatest way to market your cause, is it? Maybe we as a church should learn the wisdom of Jesus' call to discipleship. Because we will never attract dedicated, loyal men and women to an easy way. It is the call to uncompromising commitment and hard-won gains that attracts the heart, hearts of sincere truth-seekers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it very well 
when he famously pointed out when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Discipleship is dangerous, and it costs, and only the fittest survive. And the fit survivors are the ones who are in Christ, Jesus says. Now, that persecution may take on a, whole, a lot of different parameters. You may not be in a place like the Middle East where they're going to kill you if you name the name of Christ. But you can be in Fayette, Maine and get all kinds of persecution from people that know you're a Christian if you name the name of Christ. In various ways. So when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It might be physical death, but you know as well as I do, when Christ calls his disciples, he says, die to yourself and take up your cross and follow me, right? It's not enough to acknowledge just the atmosphere into which Christ sends us, but we need to approach it with an attitude. This is discipleship with an attitude, okay? Here it is. Verse 16, the second part of the verse. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This verse has always intrigued me. Throughout scripture, the serpent is symbolic, not only of evil characteristics and traits, but of Satan himself, right? In Genesis 3.1, for example, the serpent is described as being, quote, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made, unquote. And we know that Satan was ultimately behind the tempting of Eve, right? He's cunning, he's crafty, he's deceitful, he's slippery, he's subtle. In my mind, the term shrewdness carries a somewhat negative connotation and smacks of a wily, tenacious, and cunning type of behavior, right? Why in the world, then, would Jesus command his followers to adopt that kind of an attitude? This is really countercultural, isn't it, for Christians, what Jesus is saying? What was he getting at? I mean, really, when he was saying, be like a snake. And by the way, it is a command. In the Greek language, it's called a present tense imperative. It means that we are to continually adopt as a matter of habitual practice the snake-like characteristics that he was referring to. So what was he getting at? Well, until I did a little research, I really didn't have a satisfactory answer to that question. But in the Hebrew and Greek languages, the word for shrewd can be used in both a positive and a negative sense. Only context determines meaning. You've heard me say that before, right, from this pulpit. When you interpret scripture, you need to use it in its context because just because it says one thing in one place doesn't necessarily mean it, say that it means the same thing in another context. Context determines the meaning. In a negative context, it means cunning, crafty, wily, or tricky. In a positive context, it refers to prudence, cleverness, wise perception, and skill. Interestingly, the same negative positive usage is true in English, isn't it? The Greek word comes from a word that refers to the mind or the intellect. It indicates intellectual alertness. So to be shrewd in a Christ-like context means, okay, here it is, to be sharp, to be penetrating and quick-witted. It is to exhibit keen insight and astute judgment to be cautious, to be alert, and to be aware. What does that have to do with us being like a snake? Well, I'm about to tell you. I did some research on snakes, and I've come up with five aspects of snake-like behavior that I believe Jesus had in mind for us to adopt really quickly. Number one, we need to be spiritually alert. Okay, spiritually alert. On countless occasions, Jesus extolled the virtues of watchfulness and readiness all over the New Testament, especially in Matthew 25. If you keep watch, you're ready for your enemy, right? You're ready for your Lord. Did you know that a snake never closes its eyes? Ever. Not once. Ever. In its entire lifetime, 
You know why? Because it can't. <laughs> Has no eyelids. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, a snake is watching and alert. Kind of eerie. Don't they ever sleep? You're questioning? Well, yes, they do sleep, but their eyes continue to see objects that might affect its survival. Okay? If an enemy approaches, the eye discerns the danger, the snake awakens and flees to safety. If something harmless is detected, a snake remains asleep. That's incredible to me. When Jesus told us to be as shrewd as serpents, I believe he was telling us to be constantly aware. Don't fall asleep. Don't close your eyes to the dangers around you. Be aware of the enemy and his tactics. He was commanding us to be spiritually alert. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Keep your eye on them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Shrewd as a serpent, harmless as a dove. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We must stay spiritually alert. Number two, we must be spiritually clean. Spiritually clean, the snake is the cleanest and most disease-free animal on the face of the earth. Did you know that? They crawl through mud and dirt and all kinds of carnage, and they stay perfectly clean. They don't waste a lot of time constantly cleaning themselves. In a sense, we should be like the serpent. As we live and move through the filth and hideousness of the world around us, we're supposed to remain unstained by the world, says James, right? Unaffected. Pure and undefiled religion, James says, in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Number three, we must be spiritually sensitive. Snakes are extremely sensitive to their surroundings due to a heat-sensing nerve on the side of its face. Sometimes while crawling through the grass, it cannot see its enemy or its prey or its prey, but because of these heat sensors, they can determine with deadly accuracy the impending danger and defend themselves. You know how handy that would be? <laughs> Don't laugh because you have it, and so do I, if you're in Christ. The Holy Spirit. In addition, a snake has an incredible mechanism for finding food. Through its tongue, the snake licks the air, collecting molecules which, when drawn across a sensing organ in its mouth, is able to determine and distinguish specific molecules good for its nourishment. And you thought they were just taunting you. As Christians, we have been equipped with the Holy Spirit who sensitizes us to discern the truth, discern error. He warns us of impending danger and guides us into spiritual truth by which we grow. And when we respond to his leading, he keeps us perceptive and gives us sound judgment. And as sheep facing a pack of hundred hungry wolves just waiting to lunge, that is exactly what we need. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Fourthly, we must be spiritually diligent. Now, the endurance and patience of a snake is absolutely astounding. They have, they have been known to live for months, months, mind you, without food or water, without a noticeable change in their appearance. There are times when we must endure trials, patiently waiting for the Lord to act. Isn't that right? 
There are. Trust me. There are. But as Isaiah wrote, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, it says in Isaiah 40. Fifthly, finally, we must be spiritually disciplined. Snakes are at their best after they've been exposed to the light for a while. It warms them up. Snakes are cold-blooded. The colder they are, the slower they move. You make the spiritual application. When they expose themselves to the warmth of the sun, S-U-N, that's when they're at their best, quick, alert, sensitive to their surroundings and prudent in their behavior. You know what Jesus charged us? To be spiritually disciplined, exposed to the light of the word, warmed by the presence of the sun, S-O-N, in our lives. We do what we do best when we walk in the light of his word and in his companionship. When we discipline ourselves to stay in that light, we will rarely stumble. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to what? His word. That's what it says in Psalm 119. Okay? Look at those things on the screen. Mark them down and make them a Facebook application, among other things. Every one of these characteristics should guide our use of Facebook or any other social media. Spiritually alert, spiritually clean, spiritually sensitive, spiritually diligent, and spiritually disciplined. Be shrewd as serpents, Jesus said. You need spiritual sharpness, mental alertness, personal caution, practical wisdom in the midst of a world that will seek your lives and balance it off with the innocent of a dove. We're to be innocent in all our behavior. And the word literally means unmixed, unadulterated, in a word, sincere. Both shrewdness and innocence are tricky virtues, however. The two qualities of shrewdness and innocence must be kept in sensitive balance under the discerning guidance of the Holy Spirit. Handle shrewdness with care because unless, now watch this, shrewdness, handle it with care unless it is accompanied by the innocent sincerity of a pure heart, it can easily degenerate into the vice of a cheap and cunning spirit. Following me? We must be in constant check of our deepest motives at all times. Similarly, unless innocence is balanced by the alertness and prudence with Jesus described, innocence alone can erode into ignorance and naivete and thereby easily baited and trapped. So you see the balance that Jesus puts us in. A dove, for example, can be easily ensnared. Jesus, in his wisdom, combined the best qualities of both of these creatures to illustrate how we must be as we encounter the wolves of society. Paul really summarized it well when he wrote to the believers at Philippi in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to close. The message paraphrases it this way. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. Some mission, huh? It's our mission. Given by Jesus. And because of Christ's unchanging word and abiding presence, it is not impossible. Life in the real world, it's a mission. The mission through very dangerous and ruthless jungle. And you and I, for in Christ, have been chosen. So what? Stop complaining. 
Stop complaining. And I'm preaching to myself as well as you. Stop complaining and whining about what we're up against. It's par for the course if you're a follower of Christ. Alarming conditions demand that we have acuteness in our character. You must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. The problems aren't the problem. In fact, they are the very thing that signifies that we're alive in Christ. A well-known speaker used to say this, if you have no problems at all, I warn you, you're in grave jeopardy. You're on your way out and you don't even know it. If you don't believe you have any problems, I suggest that you immediately race from wherever you are, jump into your car, drive home as fast but as safely as possible, run into your house, go straight to your bedroom and slam the door. Get on your knees and pray. What's the matter, Lord? Don't you trust me anymore? Give me some problems. You ready to pray that? Now, we needn't go so far as to pray for problems. Jesus said that being his disciple in today's world would bring them on without us even asking for them. They come with the territory. Sheep in the midst of wolves. But the point's well taken, isn't it? If you're never experiencing any opposition, the question still remains. Are you representing Christ accurately? Are you? Let's pray. Father, one verse of Scripture packs so much meaning. So much here, Lord God, to help us to understand what you call us to and what you promise to us. Father, let us not dwell on the things necessarily that will come against us, but dwell on the fact that you go with us. I am with you, Jesus said, till the end of the age. Thank you, Father, for that grace, that power, for that mercy, for that wonderful, wonderful promise. May we walk forth from here in your name as good representatives and ambassadors for you. And I pray it in your priceless and holy name, Jesus. Amen.